Welcome, Mosaic. We're so glad. Hi, we're so glad that you're here tonight. Would you stand with us? And we are going to praise our Lord together tonight. Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come to him with thanksgiving. Let us sing psalms of praise to him. For the Lord is a great God, a great King of all kings. We worship the God who was. We worship the God who is. We worship the God who Oh, God. 
you please have a seat? We're going to take a look at this video now. Over the next month, members of fellowship will have the opportunity to nominate new elders to the elder board. In our church governance structure, the elder board is made up of godly men who make critical and significant decisions on behalf of our body. We are not a church with elders. We are a church led by elders. The nomination and recognition process are very important to the health of our church family. Here is what we are asking members of fellowship to do. First, please pray for the elder nomination process and discern whether you should nominate someone to the office of elder. Second, if you do have a nomination, please visit fellowshipnwa.org forward slash elder nomination and complete the online form. Please read the accompanying document entitled Qualifications of an Elder before making your nomination. If you prefer a paper nomination form, you may pick up one at the information desk in the worship center foyer at each campus. The nomination form will be attached to the Qualifications of an Elder document. Please mail paper nominations to the church office on the Rogers campus to the attention of the elders. The deadline for making a nomination is December 11. Please pray for your elders as we initiate the process of recognizing new elders. Finally, we thank Scott Thompson and Roger Hill for their years of faithful service as elders. They have represented you and the Lord well during their tenure. When you see them, please thank these gentlemen for their faithful service. On another note, a few of the buildings on our Rogers campus need some attention. The Family Center was completed in 1991. The Worship Center and Foyer were completed in 1999. That's a quarter of a century. The elders have approved moving forward with much needed improvements to those buildings. The cost is estimated to be approximately $4.5 million. We don't want to go into debt for this project and we have proven on initiatives of much larger scale that we can get this done if all our congregations work together. My wife Denise and I will be setting up monthly recurring gifts to do our part and I hope you will too. No gift is too large or too small. And remember, it's not about equal giving, but equal sacrifice. On the giving page of our website, you will find capital improvements. You can make a contribution there or set up recurring gifts. We already have $1.3 million in donations, so we are well on our way. God continues to do great things through Fellowship Bible Church of Northwest Arkansas. Thank you for playing an active role in this great ministry. God bless you, everyone. Kyle Jackson, and I'm the worship team leader here, and it's great to see you tonight. Uh, I get to serve alongside Laura uh, in our worship team, and it's just a gift to be here at Mosaic. Um, I want to fill you guys in on a few things we've got going on in our body. Uh, first up, we have a sage night of worship. So I, I, the way I've explained it is I grew up in central Arkansas, and we used to have these things called singings on my mamaw's front porch. Does that resonate with anybody? So that's kind of what this is going to feel like, some good old gospel hymns. Uh, that we'll be singing. So if, if you're one of our sage uh, members of the body, um, and you would really, if you just enjoy a, a night of uh, singing together some good old gospel hymns, 
uh, Monday night, this coming November 13th, Monday night at 6 p.m. in the Lodge, we're gonna have a sage night of worship, and we'd love to see you there. Uh, Next up, I wanted to let you guys know that we are actually going to have two more baptisms this uh, evening at our 6.30 service. So I would encourage you, if you'd like to stick around, just to celebrate, if you don't have anything else going on tonight, it's a fun way to celebrate and, and be a part of kind of what God's, go, what God's got going on, uh, maybe in, in the services you don't normally get to come to. So we'd love to see you here to celebrate. And uh, last, I just want to mention that we are thankful for our, our veterans. So if, if you were a veteran uh, and you've served, would you mind raising your hand? We appreciate you. Can we give you a round of applause? Yes, thank you so much. Thank you so much for serving. Now, I'm gonna pray for us as we focus our eyes on Jesus tonight. Would you join me, church? God, we love you. Lord, we fix our eyes on you tonight. Lord, knowing that you have called us to be yours. Lord, help us to live obedient tonight to your spirit. Help us have a sensitivity to your Holy Spirit, Lord. Where he's calling us to, who he's calling us to, Lord, may we not leave this place the same tonight, but changed. Lord, we love you. Praise things in your name, amen. Church, would you stand and worship with us?
continue in worship tonight with grateful hearts as we pray our offering prayer together. Oh, Father, giver of all, every good and perfect gift is We ask you to accept the gifts and use them to your glory. May they bring shelter to the homeless, comfort to the sick, rest to the weary, and hope to the hopeless. As you multiply the offering of fish and loaves, multiply these to accomplish more than we can ask or imagine. We give freely and not under condition, for all we have is yours, Lord. Nothing we can give could match your great gifts to us, your Son, and your Spirit. Amen.
how to love like you have loved us. Heal my heart and make it clean. Good evening, Mosaic. My name is Scott Palmer, and my better half, Faye, is overworking in the pre-K room at this time. We moved here about a little over two years ago from Colorado Springs, Colorado, to be closer to our son and his family. We have two granddaughters, and we started attending Mosaic shortly thereafter. Uh, here at Mosaic, we serve on occasion as uh, greeters out in the front lobby. We also, Faye actually has a Sage group that meets in our home there in Springdale. And then we also meet, uh, we enjoy being a part of a community group that meets in the home of a wonderful couple, Chris and Kathy Miller. In the greater Northwest Arkansas community, we volunteer at a food pantry in Fayetteville, and we also deliver meals in Springdale. And just over the time we've been here, we've really come to feel at home in Northwest Arkansas. And, and yes, it isn't Colorado, but I've had somebody tell me that you know, the mountains may not be as tall, but the valleys sure seem a lot deeper. So, if you'll join me in the scripture reading for this evening, it's Philippians 4, 1 through 5. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you who I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Odia, and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, Help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening, Fellowship Mosaic. It's so good to see you guys. My name is Will Blanchard. I serve on the training center team here at Fellowship, and uh, it's a joy to be with you all. One thing that uh, Scott didn't mention uh, when he described some of the ways he serves is uh, he also is a big encouragement to, uh, to myself, and I uh, have really enjoyed uh, spending some, some hours on some trails here in Arkansas with him. Uh, I haven't yet convinced him maybe that the Arkansas trails are better than Colorado trails, but we're working on that. And, uh, but it's a privilege to have Scott and Faye a part of the body here. You know, if you've been with us the last several weeks, you know that we are in the middle of a study 
uh, of the book of Philippians in the New Testament, this incredible letter that the Apostle Paul has written. And I want us to, as we jump into the text tonight, we're going to be continuing this series and jumping into Philippians chapter 4. But just before we do, to sort of give our, our, our minds a little bit of context and a reminder of, of where we've been, I want you to consider that the last time that you attempted to build something where you lacked either the big picture or a detailed set of instructions. You lacked one of the two. You either lacked the big picture of sort of where you're headed or the object that you're actually building, or you lacked the detailed instructions. I know for us right now, we're in a season of life where we're rearranging some bedrooms and setting up uh, a nursery for a baby that's due at the end of January. And uh, recently was uh, putting together a crib that I thought I wouldn't need to ever do again. Uh, but we found ourselves needing to assemble one and uh, was so thankful that uh, the instructions somehow were still with this used crib. Because I knew the picture of what I needed to do, but going back to sort of the details of what goes where, it was really handy to have both the big picture and the detailed instructions. And over the past couple weeks, particularly through Philippians 3, we've been able to walk through sort of the whole story of God and the story of salvation and the life that we've been given through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, if I were to sort of summarize Philippians chapter 3 in just one slide and maybe even pair the sections of Philippians 3 with some theological terms, it would flow something like that. This idea that in Christ, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Christ followers have been justified. Our past has been forgiven, and we have been given right standing before God because of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And that is a tremendous cause for celebration. And you'll see phrases throughout the New Testament that will say things like, I have been saved. And Paul uses some of those expressions. But also you'll, you'll notice as you work your way through Philippians chapter three, you come across a, another concept and this reality of the, the present reality that Christ continues to make in the life of a Christ follower. This idea of sanctification. The idea that, that currently Jesus is knocking off the rough edges of my life, changing me from the inside out, and that I am being saved currently. That I'm held by Jesus. But then, as Natesel unpacked for us last week, the, the future hope of a follower of Jesus, this idea of the glorification to come, that in the future I will be saved by Christ. And you know, if this is your story, if you have put your hope and trust in Jesus Christ, this slide really represents the life of a Christ follower. And some of the guiding metaphors that Paul uses to sort of give imagery to this, this process um, he uses some language like stand and walk and run. And it's this idea that we stand on the fact that our past is forgiven in Christ. But also we stand on the fact that our future is secure. But in the middle, we don't just stand, we run. 
that as Christ followers, we are to pursue the things of Christ. We are to actively serve other people. We are to make disciples. We are to share our hope and faith in Christ. And we are to engage culture and make things better wherever God has planted us. But on the heels of sort of setting up this this macro view of God's story, Paul is going to get extremely personal and detailed by diving in to to describe the thought life of a Christ follower and to also discuss what it looks like to do things like to manage conflict in relationship. That here in Philippians chapter 3 and 4, we're given not only just sort of a macro or a big picture view of the life of a Christ follower, but we're also getting into sort of the nitty-gritty instructions of what does it look like to stand firm? What does it look like to represent Jesus well in our relationships? And we see that in the church at Philippi that Paul is writing to, that unity actually needed restoring and sort of a steadfastness needed encouraging. That that Paul here is is addressing both good theology and good application. And what a powerful recipe that is for a healthy church, for a healthy follower of Jesus. That our life not only is grounded and reflects good theology, but also displays good application. And in the first five verses of chapter 4, Paul's going to paint a picture of what it looks like to stand firm in the Lord in light of the resurrected life of Jesus Christ that he's just described. And what we're going to see tonight as we work our way through just the first five verses in chapter 4 and this picture of what it looks like to stand firm, we're going to see that there's, there's actually three characteristics or three sort of components to a recipe of a life that stands firm in Christ. One is going to be that a person lives in harmony with other people, or at least is in pursuit of or attempting to live in harmony with one another. Then there's this idea that a life that stands firm in Christ is also willing to rejoice in all occasions. And then finally, this idea that A follower of Jesus that stands firm is willing to develop a quality of sweet reasonableness or gentleness in how they conduct their life. So if you've got your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 4, and we're going to work our way through these first five verses, verse by verse. Therefore, and again, Paul is writing in light of chapter 3, in this description of a follower of Jesus. Therefore, in light of the resurrected life of Christ, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Paul here, in the opening verse of chapter four, is using very, very strong, affectionate language as he writes to these fellow believers there in the city of Philippi. Notice words like, my brothers and sister, you whom I love and long for. Paul here, he's describing the, the, the agape love of God, that unconditional, 
unchanging love. Paul here is, is, is expressing his deep affection for these b- believers who truly have captured his heart. He describes them as my joy and my crown. You know, here, the, the, the language that Paul's using to describe this church at Philippi, it's literally the language of a prize that's given to an Olympic runner who wins, wins a race. And Paul here, I think as he's under house arrest, he's, he's facing imprisonment for the cause of the gospel, is writing to these believers who he has poured and invested his life into. He's saying to them, he, he, he's realizing one day he will give an account for how he has invested his life. He'll stand before Jesus and he'll give an account for the things that he invested in. And it's literally as if Paul is referring to this church in Philippi as, you guys are my scorecard. In fact, I'm so proud that I've invested my life in you. One day when I give an account for what I've invested in, I look forward to standing before Jesus and being able to point back to you. These are the people that I'm willing to sacrifice for. These are the disciples that I've made, and I'm proud of them, and I trust that they will carry on the cause of Christ. You see, the focus of Paul's love here is directed towards these followers of Jesus who he has personally invested in and knows by name. And an introductory verse to a a, a chapter like this ought to cause us not to just sort of fly through and continue on, but, but to maybe even pause and take examination of this affectionate language and, and, and consider who or what would be the focus of my life? Who or what would I use such strong affectionate language towards that, that literally I would liter- be able to stand before Jesus and say, that's what I invested my life in, Lord. Those are the people It ought to cause us as followers of Jesus to even consider, who am I investing in? Who would be those people? But on the heels of such affectionate language, Paul then gives a very clear command. Stand firm in the Lord in this this way, dear friends. It's the strongest command in the verses that we'll look at tonight. That Paul here is instructing, not asking them, hey, consider, like, hey, look, I've invested my life in you guys and it'd be great if like you wouldn't blow it. You know, just would you at least think about it? No, he's saying, I've invested my life in you. You're my joy, my crown, the people that I love. And now I'm calling you to stand firm in the Lord. And notice the instruction of what that could look like in the verses that follow. Paul here says, I plead with you, Odia, and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. There's a shift in the language. Paul goes from giving a command, stand firm in the Lord, to suddenly saying, 
In this moment, though, I'm going to plead with some sisters in Christ. In fact, there's, there's kind of a, a fascinating, almost leadership lesson, certainly a spiritual leadership lesson that I, I think we can see in the text here, that, that Paul here doesn't go from, I command you to stand firm in the Lord, to I command you to work out your problems, but rather here he pleads. He's addressing some, some conflict that's occurring with two women leaders in the church there at Philippi. And rather than heavy-handedly commanding them to work out your problems, he pleads with them. There, there's, a, there's a humility expressed there. But notice why he pleads with them or what he appeals to. He's not just pleading to them for unity's sake, like, would you guys please work out your problems and leaving it at that? But rather, as he's pleading with these women, he's directing them that the source of their conflict management will be found in their pursuit of the mindset of Jesus Christ. He's encouraging these women, as you seek harmony, pursue the same mind in the Lord. And you know, that, that phrase there, that Paul says the same mind of the Lord, it ought to cause us to sort of pause and ask the question, what would be the mindset of Jesus Christ? You know, Mosaic, if I could really kind of confess things to you, when I saw that in the text in studying, I had to pause and go, I wonder if Paul has described what the mindset of Jesus Christ is. And it took me back to a passage from a couple weeks ago, and when I looked it up, you know, the irony is I taught on that passage <laughs> a couple weeks ago and it, it caused me to realize how badly I need my mindset restored by the truth of scripture on a daily, weekly and consistent basis of how quickly I forget, well, what is the mindset of Jesus? And as I went back to that passage, I was like, man, this is such a rich passage. And it literally dawned on me I taught that just a couple weeks ago. So look with me. Actually, Nate's even referenced it last week. Look with me at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. As Paul's directing these women to have the same mindset of Jesus Christ, they would have recalled that he's described what the mindset of Jesus Christ is. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross." The same mindset as Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is pleading for these leaders to focus on. That as they pursue the same mindset of Jesus Christ, that he will be the one that will produce a harmony in that relationship. As we continue on in verse 3. Paul says, again, these are very detailed, personal instructions. Yes, I ask you, my true companion, 
Help these women since they have continued, contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers who, whose names are in the book of life. This phrase that Paul uses here, true companion, we don't know exactly who that is, but, but Paul is appealing to the believers there as these leaders work out their conflict to involve others that will help them focus their life on the mindset of Jesus Christ. This true companion most likely was an elder or a pastor that, that Paul was entrusting sort of the shepherding oversight of the body there at Philippi too. In fact, the, the language there uh, most directly translated is yoke fellow. This idea of a co-laborer that would come alongside and help direct them towards that mindset of Christ. But it ought to cause us to ask a, a question, even in this closing chapter of, of, of Philippians, why would conflict management and issues of steadfastness and unity be so important to Paul anyway? And I, I think one way we can answer that question is looking at even the instructions of Jesus on his final night with his disciples there in the upper room. We read in John 13, 34 through 35, that Jesus is telling his disciples moments before his death, burial, and eventual resurrection. He says to his followers in the upper room, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That, that literally, the mark of a follower or a group of followers of Jesus would be expressed in how well they love each other based on the example of Jesus. And so I think Paul here, as, as he gets into some of the most intimate sort of personal relationships that we see expressed in his writings, is, is moving beyond, this isn't just like a PR thing of like, hey, it'd be great since this is the church I planted, if you guys could get your act together and not embarrass me. No, I think as a spiritual father here, Paul is instructing the leaders here to stand firm in their walk with Jesus and to, to work out conflict by pursuing the mindset of Jesus so that their love for one another based on what Jesus has done for them will be like a bright shining light for the city there in Philippi and eventually for Christ followers to come for centuries. That standing firm on the resurrection of Jesus Christ will spur or cause a group of people to pursue harmony. But also we see as we work our way through these verses that a Christ follower standing firm in Christ will also display joy. Look with me in verse 4 as Paul continues these instructions. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Here, Paul is giving some instructions 
to not simply just rejoice in everything you're going through. In fact, I, I think if we were to be able to interview Paul at this point, knowing that he is under house arrest, eventually facing imprisonment and execution for the cause of the gospel, that in the midst of tragedy, we're not to rejoice. There's a very important prepositional phrase here. We're not to rejoice in those tragedies, but we're to rejoice in the Lord in the midst of tragedy. That Paul here is saying that a life focused on Christ and a person who has a heart that is guarded by Christ will find a way to rejoice in the goodness and the mercy and the grace of God in the midst of pain and suffering. And just in case we didn't catch it the first time, he says it twice. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. But there's also a third description that Paul lays out for a life that is standing firm in Christ. And we see that here in verse 5. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Now, I don't know about you, but the, 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 probably the first time that I read that verse, it sort of feels like it comes out of left field. Let your gentleness be evident to all. But what we see here is, it's almost like Paul is sort of circling back on an issue. That as our lives display the harmony and the joy of Christ and this, this call or this command to stand firm, it's as if Paul is circling back and giving a, a qualifier or a clear description of what it looks like to stand firm. I don't know about you, but there, there have been times where I've maybe been around a Christ follower or two who sees this call to stand firm as a call to just be an absolute jerk to the people around him. That in the name of standing firm and engaging culture and taking on the world, it's like there will nothing will shake me and I'm just gonna walk around and punch as many people as I can in the mouth with truth. And they completely neglect the qualifier or the further description and instruction that I think Paul's giving us here of what it looks like to have a life that is transformed by Christ, is rooted in his word, and is willing to stand firm. And the description that Paul gives us here of gentleness could also be described as a reasonableness, a yielding, a kindness, a patience, and a generosity. Certainly not a spinelessness, but a selflessness. That standing firm in our faith in Christ means being willing to view others as perhaps more important than ourselves. I, I love how Tom Constable describes the gentleness that Paul refers to here. He describes it as 
the life of a Christ follower developing a quality of sweet reasonableness. That sense of that in every interaction and certainly in moments where God is calling us to stand firm, we also are, are well aware of the tremendous sacrifice that Jesus paid on our behalf. We're also well aware of our own depravity and the sinfulness that we have been forgiven from in Christ. And it ought to cause us to have a softening towards the people around us. That as we stand firm in Christ, that there is a gentleness on display. And then here, that, that final phrase that Paul gives the Lord is near, it actually is not a description of his abiding presence, all that, that's a certain reality. What Paul here is, he, he's on the heels of this command, he's reminding the church to live with a sense of urgency. That as they're being commanded or called to stand firm in their faith in Christ and to display that through harmony and joy and gentleness to be reminded that Jesus is returning. To be aware and to live life with urgency and, and not to just sort of float through life and forget the fact that he will return and he's invited us to live on mission and obedience until that moment. You know, the last few weeks, um, I actually have had the incredible gift, Sarah and I have, of being on a, a sabbatical. Every few years here for the, the, the pastors and the leaders at Fellowship, our elders are, are so gracious to provide us a few weeks to rest and reflect and um, also to dream about the future and reconnect as a family. And it's really been a, a sweet season for us to um, even to just prepare for a new edition that's coming and uh, spend some extra time on the trails and spend some extra time in study and... Uh, Coming off the, that sabbatical as it ended this past week, Sarah and I had the incredible privilege to, to be up in, in New York City investing in some, some church planters there, some, some couples, about 15 couples that were prayerfully consider, considering planting churches around the country. And we were partnering with a, a ministry called Stadia and helping assess uh, and help some of these church planters discern God's call in their life and their preparedness and really, really like just an enriching, encouraging week. Uh, but one of the things that I was even thinking about uh, on the, the plane ride home late last night is, is just this idea of, you know, if you sort of break life down into to, to decades, and that's kind of a new way that I'm in my 40s starting to sort of see life and leadership, that, you know, for the most part, you spend the first 30 years kind of figuring out how to not be an idiot, <laughs> You learn a couple things. Uh, some, some of us learn that faster than others. Um, some of it kind of perpetuates a little longer. But you're, you're sort of learning sort of the, the craft or the calling that, that God may be directing you, whether that's marketplace or ministry or, you know, whatever that may be. And, and, but then there's, there's something that, that begins to, to happen probably from 30 to 70 where you, you sort of look at like just basically four decades. Certainly there's some sage years after that, but in terms of like, the productive sort of decades of your career where you really make maybe maximum investment, you got about four 10-year spans to invest in things. And so coming off the heels of sabbatical and spending time with these church planners, I, I just was kind of 
doing some self-reflecting myself and looking at, you know, through our 30s, Sarah and I planted a church and pastored that church. And now into our 40s, God's allowing us to invest in, in some church planters and spending a week up in New York with some potential church planters. It, it really affirmed in us the fact that investing in leaders who will be planting churches, that's something we feel called to give a decade to. That's worthy of, a, of, of pushing on for five, 10 or more years. And I, I think Paul here, as he's wrapping up this letter, and it's kind of a lengthy sort of wrap up here, and he's giving some very detailed instructions to a group of people that God used him to, to lead to Christ and disciple and to set up and to call them to become reproducing disciples themselves. I, I, I think Paul here is, is wanting to remind them, as you're standing firm, live life with a sense of urgency. Be reminded of the fact that Jesus, your Savior, he will return. Be ready to give an account for how you invested your one and only life. Stand firm, and as you do that, reflect harmony, reflect the joy of Christ, but do it with gentleness. Do it with a reasonableness, a sweet reasonableness that will reflect the heart and character of Jesus. And I think when we look at these five verses, we see that Jesus Christ is capable of restoring unity in the local church. And he alone is the one that provides the strength that we actually need to stand firm. You see, Paul here, he's not instructing the Christians there in Philippi, hey, I want you to pull yourselves up by your bootstraps and through gritted teeth, be unified, stand firm, take on the world. No, I think he's trying to instruct them Keep your focus on Jesus Christ. He's the only one capable of producing unity in his body and providing his people with the strength necessary to stand firm. And so tonight, Mosaic, I invite you to consider where do you need unity in your life restored? Maybe in a marriage, maybe in relationship with other brothers and sisters in Christ. And then also, where do you need strength to stand firm? Where are maybe you lacking conviction to express Jesus fully in a certain area of your life? Be willing to ask him for that strength. Mosaic, would you pray with me? Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that your word gives us the macro big picture of who you are and what you're up to and what you've invited us into. But we're also thankful, Lord, that your word gives us very detailed instructions on how to live a life that pleases you, how to reflect your character, how to, to operate as a healthy church. And I pray tonight that in a fresh way, just as Paul was encouraging the church at Philippi, 
we would be reminded that Jesus is the one that produces unity in the body. And Jesus is the one capable of providing the strength that we need to stand firm. God, we love you. And we ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Church, we're gonna enter into a prayer pause or a Selah, just a time for you to spend with the Lord as you get to really ask the Holy Spirit, what, what are you poking at tonight? What are you prompting in my soul? So we have two questions on the screen that I'll let you just read through as you process. The first question being, where do you need unity restored in your life? Just take a moment to process through that one question. Do one at a time here. Where do you need unity restored? feel like you have clarity, maybe write it down. Tell, tell a spouse, tell a friend. The second question, the last question, this time together with the Lord is, where do you need strength to stand firm? Just take a moment to process that. pursue unity together as the church and as individuals in the church. Father, we come boldly before you. Lord, knowing that you are here and you're listening, Lord God. You're moving amongst us. Lord, and it's not just in the service that it happens, but you go with us, Father, constantly with us. Lord, you're Emmanuel. What a gift it is. Lord, even if, if we don't receive clarity in these moments, Lord, that you'll be with us. Lord, we might receive clarity later. We love you so much, Father. Help us to be a church of unity. 
one that sees one another and looks each other in the eyes. We love you so much, Lord. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. And with one voice, let's sing these words together.
thank you for our faith which unifies us and our faith on which we can stand firm. Lord, may we remain steadfast in our love for you and our love for each other and help us, Lord, to rejoice in all circumstances in your holy name. Amen. Mosaic, thank you for worshiping with us tonight and now let us go in peace and love to serve the Lord.